Father, I pray a blessing on our time tonight and on this room full of hearts ready to receive your word. I pray a blessing of knowledge, confidence, certainty in the truth of your word. I pray, Father, for an open heart to hear the things that are spoken to the church as they were spoken to us personally as well. And we ask, Father, for clarity, not just in what we learn, but in what we do with it. A confidence, a clarity, a certainty that what you have given us tonight and what we learn is not meant just for our own edification and knowledge. It's also meant for our spiritual development and action. I also thank you, Father, for the men and women who are in here who would give time to a study in the middle of their week. Father, we, we know our world is busy. It has many demands. Our time is limited. But as you told us in Luke, when Mary and Martha had Jesus come into their home, it is better to sit at your feet than to busy about in the affairs of our day. We thank you, Lord, for that privilege tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, friends. A proper study of the book of Revelation is not an exercise in mysticism or speculation. It's a practice of careful observation of the text combined with a systematic searching of Scripture. And that's what we looked at last week as we opened up in chapter 1. Last week we saw just how systematic our study could be when we observed what John saw in that opening chapter as he introduced the book. First, we noticed that John was told to write what he sees. Remember, not what he's told, but what he sees. And it's that detail that explains why this book is so challenging for us to understand. That normally when you look at Scripture, books of Scripture, and you say, I want to interpret a book of Scripture, interpreting, generally speaking, it means understanding an explanation of it, understanding what it says. But in this case, John just gives us descriptions of events that he sees, which means, before I can tell you what it means, I have to make sense of what he describes. From that, then, you have to move into interpreting what the meaning of those visions are. It's a more complex process because of the nature of the writing. And this style of Scripture puts a premium on our skills of observation and on our knowledge of Scripture generally. Because that's how we're going to come to our answers. So our observation skill is going to help us make sense of what John describes. And our knowledge of the Bible will come to bear in interpreting what those visions mean. And as I told you last week, it's my job to help you do that, obviously. But I'm also here to train you. That is, I like to do the study that I do in a way so that you don't just understand what it means. I'm showing my work as I go. Remember, your math teachers always used to say, show your work. That was to make sure that you weren't just guessing right, you know? Well, how do you know that someone who tells you the Bible means X or Y, how do you know they're not just guessing? You want them to show you their work, right? Show me your work. How did you figure that out? Tell me how you came to that answer. And if they say, oh, it came to me in a dream, find a better Bible teacher. (laughs) So that's the second thing we learned last week. The meaning of the things we read in this book, and if, for, for example, in particular symbols, those meanings are found elsewhere in Scripture. We are not expected to speculate, make it up on our own, or guess well. That's not study of the Bible. That's fiction. What you're supposed to do is look at the Bible with an eye to understand God gave it to us to be known. He didn't give it to us to confuse us. And what he's writing in the last book of this Bible builds on everything he wrote before it. So if what you read doesn't make sense, it's because it's buried somewhere else in the Bible and you missed it. And so part of the homework is to go back and find it. Again, that's what I'm here for. So if the meaning of a symbol, for example, is important to the story, then the Bible will have explained the meaning of that symbol somewhere prior to where you encounter it in the Bible. And often that explanation will be right there in the immediate context. 
But if not, it'll be found somewhere else. That's the second thing we learned. And the third thing I want to remind you of last week is that the book itself is structured according to an outline. A very simple outline, one that we studied last week and we'll look at again here now. It's in chapter 1, it's in verse 19, and I want to pick up there again tonight. I want to look at the outline that guides our understanding of this entire book because it will be immensely helpful to keeping straight what it says. Let's go back to chapter 1, verse 19. This is what it says. John says, Therefore write the things which you have seen. This is Jesus speaking, of course. Therefore write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. So John was told by Christ to write this book in three parts. The first part was to write the things which you have seen. The second part is to write the things which are. And the third part is to write the things which will take place after these things. So that's your outline of the book. Now, not maybe what you were hoping for. It doesn't have enough detail to suit us, perhaps, but it tells us a lot more than you think. Last week, we started trying to identify which chapters of this book correspond to each of these parts. Because John wrote this book in the same order as these parts were given to him in chapter 1. He literally wrote the things he saw first, then the things that are next, and then finally part 3. So when we looked at this last week... What we did was some simple observation, just beginning with the tense of the verbs that he uses in this phrase, in this verse. The first part, for example, Jesus says, write the things which you had seen. In other words, it's past tense, a past tense version of verb. And so Jesus is referring to what? What must have been past tense from that moment? From the moment of chapter 1, verse 19, what had already transpired that John had seen? It's not hard, right? Verse 1 through 18. That's it. Or, since verse 19 is almost near the end of the chapter, we're just going to round up. So, in other words, chapter 1 constitutes the things that John had seen because it's the only part of the book that had already taken place by the time those words were spoken by Jesus. Past tense. Past tense. What did he see? Well, he saw... His Lord in a resurrected, glorified form. He saw the lampstands. He saw the stars in Jesus' hand. He described all those things. He described the appearance of Jesus, how the vision came to him, etc., etc. And in all those details we studied last week, he tells us effectively that he has authority to write what he's given to us. And that was really the part, uh, the uh, purpose in part one. Beginning with that chain of custody, I called it, at the very outset of the letter, where we hear how it moves from the Father to the Son to an angel and so on. And then from there, we hear about John's identity as an apostle and the fact that he's on Patmos. And then we look at John and his description of Jesus and his glorified appearance and then the directions he got. And then all of the things he wrote about were intended to give us some confidence to accept that this is a testimony of a man that we can believe in, that we can trust in, and what he's received and what we have now had through his hands is something we are to know. It's authentication, if you will, of the letter. All right? Now, that's part one. I told you last week, you were here for one night, you got one-third of the way through the book of Revelation. We are racing through this book. Now we move to the things which are... And like part one, it's easy to identify. I want to show you a little graph on how we do this, all right? or how I would suggest we should do this. Which chapters are associated in this book with the things that are? This is my little graph. There's 22 chapters in the book, so that's what you see going across the top there. We just said that chapter one are the things that he saw. 
So we know the second part, the things which are, second part, we know that must start in chapter 2. Kind of process of elimination, not real hard, right? So chapter 2 is the things that are, and the question then becomes, how far do we go into the book before we get out of part 2 and start part 3? That would be the next, if I could find that, then I have my three parts. By definition, I know where everything is. So, what's the obvious clue we found last week that told us where the third part starts? If I know where the third part starts, by definition, I know where the second part is ended, right? What did I find? Well, the third part is the things after these things, right? And then we went through the book and we looked at chapter 4, remember this? And in chapter 4, I'm looking to find where is the line, where do I figure out that I stop and I'm done with part 2? Well, I looked at chapter 4, verse 1, and I read after these things. Now, some of you might look at that and go, oh, come on, that's kind of coincidental. How do I know that's exactly what he meant? Hello, that's John telling you, here's part 3. That's why he used those words. But it goes deeper than that. When we actually look at what's in chapters 2 and 3, because that's what you're left with at this point, right? If chapters 4 and onward are the things after these things, then by process of elimination, chapters 2 and 3 are the things that are, right? That's just simple math at this point. But if you were to say to me, well, that seems awful tenuous. I'm not sure I can buy that. Well, how would you know if I'm right or not? Well, the simple thing to do is to look at what's inside chapters 2 and 3 and see, do the contents of those chapters make sense as the things that are? And that's actually the kind of the hardest part about this, right? That term are. We hear that chapter 2 and 3 are going to be the things that are. That word are, being in the present tense, it, it poses a little confusion as you think about it. Because that present tense verb would seem to suggest to us that John had been shown things back in that earlier day with Jesus that were relevant to him then, that were are for him then, but yet that would mean they're not are anymore. They would have been were or was, right? That's not present tense for us anymore. That's what we would assume. And it leaves us a little confused why Jesus used that terminology. But as it turns out, that's not accurate. That is, the things that John wrote in chapters 2 and 3 are every bit as much the things that are for us now as they were for back in the day that he lived. Logically, let's look at this logically for just a moment. As we try to understand this word are a little better, and we try to make sense of why chapters 2 and 3 have that title, let's go back to this chart for a second. Now we have two pieces of our 3 up there, right? We know that the things that are chapters 2 and 3, we know that the things that must take place after these things are starting in chapter 4. Now what I'm asking you to do is try to consider where in history, where in time, we move from one to the next. Where do we move from are to the things that happen after that? Or to put it graphically, I want to push this out and I want to know how far in history do the things that are stay the things that are until those new things, those things after these things, those things start whenever that is. And when those things start, it'll be after the things that are. Because that's what John said, right? Or Jesus said, write the things that are and then the things that must take place after these things that are. Have I lost anybody? We're just going to do it again. You're looking at the things that are, trying to understand, what are the things I'm waiting for, that when they start, it will tell me that I have reached the point after these things that are. All right, so 
that's part of the conundrum. As we study the chapters 2 and 3, and we know they're called the things that are, we also come to understand they are true, they are present tense, as long as the things of chapters 4 and beyond have not started. As soon as the things of chapters 4 and onward have started, by definition, we've moved to part 3 in our history, and now the things that are are now the things that were. That's part of how this outline helps us understand things. We want to know when that things that were are going to get going. So what we're doing now is we're moving on into the text itself. And I want to move to part two with an understanding of what we're going to actually do in this part. And it's the letters to the churches. That's what it's commonly called. These two chapters, two and three. They are letters written to seven literal places, churches that were churches in John's day. And in order to understand what's in these two chapters, why they're called the things that are, we need to start with a little introduction on how we're going to interpret them. That is, what we're going to do with them. And beginning with an approach that I want to explain to you guys. And it's based on how these letters are structured. It's what they contain. And knowing what they have in them, there are three complementary methods of interpretation that we need to apply. They're complementary. They all three work together. You use all three to understand the letters fully. All three are valid. All three are necessary if you're fully going to understand it. The first one should be obvious. What's the first way? You should always read Scripture. First way we want to read Scripture is literally. Literally, taking it for what it says. The literal meaning of the text. And in this case, what we're saying is these are real letters. They were written by Jesus through John's hand. They had a real audience in mind. That is, men and women who lived in John's day. These letters would have made their way to their intended audience through some method. And in this case, the cities would have been places like Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and so on. And they did exactly what Jesus intended them to do. They informed the congregations in those cities of the things Jesus wrote. And as he spoke to these things, he was speaking about literal things in their community. Issues of standing fast against false teachers or of suffering persecution and the like. Not metaphorically, literally. So that when they read the letters, it made perfect sense to them what Jesus was telling them. So in that sense, we want to look at these letters from that point of view. They are literal. And another way to say it is that they are specific, that is to each audience that they were written to. And they're historical. They're speaking about churches that no longer exist. Not as they did, at least in the day. So that's true. But we don't stop there. And we know we don't stop there for one reason more than any other. And that is that these letters, we've already said, continue to have present day significance, right? They are still the times that are. So if that's true, they cannot just be literal and historic because then we would lose the present tense value of them. They have a deeper meaning beyond the literal historic. And that second meaning is that they are also universal, We need to understand that these letters also speak to situations and perspectives that remain true throughout the time of the church. That is to say, every moment, at any time in the history of the church, somewhere in this world, you can find a church community that is experiencing the onslaught of false teaching, or a time of persecution, or of apostasy. And in that sense, you can always find an Ephesus somewhere. You can always find a Smyrna somewhere. And in that respect, these messages are timeless for the church. They continue to say things to us that are relevant, just as they did back in the first century. So we know that they are both historic and literal, and they are universal and general and timeless. Now, I would tell you, most people who study this book, maybe most is, maybe that's the wrong word, let's just say a lot, 
A lot of people who study this book stop right there. In fact, I would dare to say, if you've been in a church where your pastor has preached on the letters to the churches, and isn't it funny that that's the only part of Revelation that most pastors ever touch, but leaving that aside for a minute, they preach on the letters to the seven churches, and then, what do they do with it? Well, they tell you about the history, they tell you about what happened in that day, they move it to the present, and they talk about how these things are still applicable today, and then they're done. The problem is they missed one-third of what it's there to tell us, and arguably the most important third. Because these letters go beyond just these two facets. We know the book of Revelation is prophetic. It's a prophecy book. And prophecy in this book is not just limited to chapters 4 and onward. Every chapter in this book has a prophetic element. Every single one of them. For example, chapter 1. Now, we studied that last week, and we know it looks backward in time to a moment that John experienced on the island of Patmos, so it certainly is historic in that respect. But did you know, nonetheless, it includes a prophetic element? We talked about this a little bit last week. What's prophetic in that chapter? Well, the appearance of Christ to John in a glorified moment, in a form of his coming as second, in his second coming, that was a preview of coming attractions. That is Jesus showing John, here's what I'm going to look like when I rule and reign in my kingdom yet to come. And you're seeing it early. How do we know that's his appearance? Because if you remember, I went and I compared what we read in chapter one to things that were written in the Old Testament about the nature of God before he was incarnate, and we looked at the chapter in Revelation of his second coming in chapter 19, and the description of him there was exactly the same again. That's who he is before and after the short time he spent on earth. So, in a sense, that's prophetic, showing you something of the future. But it doesn't stop in chapter 1. It certainly doesn't only include 4 and 22. It it includes chapters 2 and 3. So we have to make that our goal. As we look at the chapters, in, or the letters rather, in those chapters, we have to give consideration to how are these chapters speaking to us about future events. And to do that, to show you how we do that, I'm going to use a simple graphic that represents part two of Revelation. That is, these two chapters together. Here's the graphic. Um, all of the locations of these churches in John's day are in present-day southwestern Turkey or what was called Asia Minor back in the day. If you look at them on the map, I've got them named there in red, there's a little pattern that you find when you compare their geographic location to the order in which they appear in chapters 2 and 3. If I were to number these according to the order of the letters, here's what you find. You see the numbers? What pattern stands out as you look at those numbers? What, what would you des- how would you describe the orientation of those numbers? Right, they're in a clockwise direction. That pattern would suggest, perhaps, that the letters are representative of a passage in time, or as a turning of time. Now, a clever student of history would point out to me at this point that mechanical clocks were not invented until the 14th century. But to that clever student, I would reply that sundials, which had been used since 3,500 B.C., track the movement of the sun in the northern hemisphere in a clockwise fashion, which is why clockmakers elected to make clocks move in a clockwise fashion when they invented them, because they were simply mirroring the way sundials worked at the time. So for everyone back in John's day, the idea of time moving in a clockwise fashion was already understood. 
And so it would seem like an interesting coincidence, at least, that these churches are presented to us in a clockwise fashion. So that curious geography starts to suggest something to us that we want to follow up on and learn more about. In other words, we don't just take that alone as our proof, but it does start to suggest that the times that are, are a, is a description of the period of time of the church, and that these letters then might be a way in which God is representing the character or the nature of his church as it evolves over time. Let me show you another graph. This is the graph I was talking about earlier. Here's the graph that sort of explains that. If we're talking about a prophetic view of the text, we're saying these letters have a symbolic eschatological meaning. They represent something to do with end times. The word eschatology just refers to the study of the end of the age or the study of the end of time. These letters are pointing us to the end of time, to the end of this age. How? Think of it this way. They connect the dots between the moment John saw Jesus, part one, and the things that lead to the second coming of Christ, parts, uh, chapters four and onward. So if to the church, Jesus is saying, I've come to tell you how the end will happen and how my second coming will take place, but there's some things that have to happen first, before my second coming begins. And the things that will fill the gap between now, John, and my second coming, the things that will fill that place are the things that are. As long as they are true, we are still in that time of waiting. And they will be the church time. Letters to the churches representing that time. So the first century church was in exactly the same position we are in right now. Waiting for Christ's return. And when chapters 4 and onward kick off, you know you are in a very short timeline before his return. We'll talk about that when we get there. Chapters 2 and 3 explain how the Lord fills the time between John and Jesus. So, Jesus, think about this for a minute. Jesus has crafted this prophecy in such a clever way. It's so clever because it could not possibly have been known by the early church. There's no way, reading this letter in the first century, you could ever have discovered that these letters were speaking of the nature of the church over time. There's nothing to suggest that in the letters themselves. The eschatological quality of them would have remained hidden for a long time, only until you reach such a point in history that you can begin to look back on history and compare it to what's said in the letters, and in that comparison, start to notice the fact that, gee, these letters say things that match up to what I've seen happen in history, Only then are you in a position to say, wait a minute, this looks like God gave us this to tell us about the history of the church. In fact, no one saw it until 150 years ago. 150 years ago is about the earliest anybody suggested that these letters could be seen prophetically. Let me show you why Christ wanted it that way. And as we examine these letters, you're going to notice that each of these letters follows a very specific pattern. That is, each letter has certain elements, and these elements are repeated, letter after letter after letter. From that pattern, you begin to see how each of these letters represents a period of history. Remember, these three methods of interpretation are not one or the other. They're all together. Each of these letters has the power to talk to a specific church in its day, and the power to talk to us about our circumstances today, and the power to reveal what the history of the church will look like over time. Your God is big enough to do all three at the same time. That's what we're learning. Also remember, we said last week, there are seven letters, which, as you remember, the number seven means 100%. But now you just learned it means 100% in two different ways. It doesn't just represent 100% of the church. It represents 100% of the time of the church. 
That is, the whole church from beginning to end, all of it being represented in these letters. Here's the graph I keep talking about. I've just been anxious to show it to you because I like it. It's, way, it's my way of thinking. There's the church age in, in a sort of notional way of thinking about it. It has a beginning, it goes through a period of history, comes to a conclusion. And what we're learning is that part two, the things that are, is a discussion of what that period of time will look like for the church. It will have seven periods, one corresponding to each of the letters. Now, not all of equal length, not all of them uh, equally uh, eventful, but just seven, according to what these letters represent. That's what we're learning. And now, with the seven letters that we're about to study, we're saying each of those letters tells us something about how the church moves through time. Now, one of the things we're interested in as we hear this, beyond just the mere fact that you'd like to see me prove it, which we will do, but as we look at this and we try to understand it, then we need to begin to ask ourselves, how would I know that this is true? What would tell me that it's true? How would the text itself validate these things? Well, as I told you earlier, you could not possibly look at these letters and understand that these things were true as you start that period of history, as you start back in the time of Ephesus, so to speak. There would have been no way to know that. You can only recognize things in hindsight. So in recognizing them in hindsight, you begin to see that there are things about history that map against them. That's going to be our proof. Our proof is going to be this. If what I'm suggesting is not true, it will fall apart under its own weight. You will look at a letter, it will say things, and you'll find no reasonable connection to history and no way to make that connection work. Or it will work. And there are some things in these letters that I promise you will blow your mind for how it compares to history. So, that's the first thing we're going to learn, is that the history of our last 2,000 years will validate what we're studying. The second thing I want you to understand about this particular uh, way of interpreting Scripture is it suggests to us that just as the church had a beginning at Pentecost, it must have an end. There are only seven letters. There is an end. There is a point in time in which the church as we know it just doesn't exist anymore. Which leads us to the question of how, why, when, things that would interest us since we were in the church, and maybe, most of all, what comes next? If the church has an end, what does that mean about what comes next? Friends, all the questions I just asked on your behalf, the book of Revelation will answer as we move through the text. All right, finally, last thing, and then we get into the first of the letters. Think about this with me. If there are only seven stages to the letters, then it should become possible for us, as we compare them to history, to discover where we are in history. Right? It should be possible at some point to look at these and say, well, where on this list of seven periods of time, where are we? And if we find that we're near the end, well, that's a pretty exciting discovery, isn't it? That's part of the the fun of this. If you told me we're living in... Stage 3, Pergamum, or stage 4, Sardis. What I'm going to say then is, oh, i got a long time to wait before Jesus comes back. I can kick back. But that doesn't sound right, does it? In fact, if you know Scripture, you know that's not even possible. Scripture talks about the return of Christ as imminent, always possible, and dependent on nothing when it comes to the church. That tells you something. In fact, it answers the question I posed to you earlier. Why, for 1,900 years or so, did the church not realize that this was a part of how to look at these letters? Because for 1,900 years, it didn't matter. 
And in fact, for 1900 years, if the church had discovered this somehow, it would have been incentive to not be interested in the second coming of Christ and would have given us perhaps reason to be lazy in our following of Jesus. But if you happen to be the church that's sitting at the end of this, well, then it's a much different thing to find out about this pattern, isn't it? Well, we'll save that for when we get there. All right, let's move now into the letters themselves. The first one we're going to study sets the pattern for the rest. That's the letter to Ephesus. I want you to turn to chapter 2, verse 1. Let's look at how these letters work. First one, he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right. As I mentioned a moment ago, these letters are highly structured. That is, they're all written in a very similar form. And that structure repeats. And it's what makes the study of these letters actually a little easier because I can make these comparisons. They're all going to have names. The names of a city. They're all going to begin with a salutation. Jesus is going to offer things like commendations, condemnations, exhortations, promises, and warnings. And he's going to offer something at the end as a promise. So if you take each of these letters apart, according to that structure, and you examine them all from the three perspectives I just gave you, you start to see what Jesus is saying to the church. And we're going to do that here. We're always going to start with the literal, historic. We're going to look a little bit at the universal and timeless. And then we'll really try to understand the perspective of prophetic eschatological interpretation. We start with a name. And each of these cities' names has a meaning in its original language. And the meaning of these names turns out to be prophetic for what goes on in the city. Ephesus was a port city uh, in the Mediterranean on the coast. Its name means desirable or desired. And it's one of the chief seaports in the Roman Empire that connected east to west. Lots of goods would flow through. Coming from the west, from Rome, they would come to that port, get off the ship, and then be brought on land from there to the east to Constantinople and beyond. And that tremendous flow of goods through this port helped make the city very wealthy, for obvious reasons. Seaports bring not just goods, they bring ships. Ships bring sailors. Sailors have certain desires. They bring travelers with them and so on. And so you can imagine the kind of industry that would grow up in a city of that type. They had uh, lots of prostitution. They had lots of bars. They had lots of restaurants and hotels and all the things you need for travelers. They were also a city that had lots of temples, for false gods, and the chief one being Artemis or Diana. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world used to be in this city. And in the midst of this hustling, bustling city, you have one of the largest and most influential churches in the first century. It was a church that counted men like Paul and John and Timothy as leaders in that place at different times in history. It's a church that features prominently in Acts. It's got a letter to it in the epistles. 
Timothy was ministering there in the letters Paul wrote to Timothy. It just has this, I don't think there's any city in the New Testament that shows up as commonly as Ephesus does. So it's a very prominent city. Jesus addresses the church, if you notice in the salutation. Uh, By the way, I have a few pictures. These are ruins now. Of course, the city is in ruins, but it had a great Roman amphitheater. There's a few buildings. It's all in Turkey today, and so a lot of people don't make it there anymore. But there's still a few things to see if you were to get there. In the letter, Jesus addresses himself to the church as the one with the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, where have you heard that before? Obviously in chapter 1. That's one of the patterns you're supposed to notice. Each of the seven letters takes some aspect of the description of Christ in chapter 1 and uses it in the salutation to the church. Now why? Because in each case, there'll be something about that salutation that's appropriate to that church. Something about their situation needed to be reminded of that detail of Jesus. And in this case, he assigns the symbols of stars and lampstands to the church of Ephesus. And from your study last week, you should remember what that imagery means. Stars, we were told, are angels. The seven angels of the churches. And the lampstands represent churches themselves. But here again, seven, seven, what are we remembering that to mean? 100%. So we're talking about all the angels over all the churches. And why are they in the picture with Jesus? What's the sense you get of Jesus holding them and walking among them? It's a picture of authority. Obviously, having something in your hand means you control it. The angels work for Jesus, like everyone. And walking among the lampstands, the best analogy I can give you is if you've ever been in an office environment sitting at little cubicles and the boss walks in and walks up and down the aisles, or maybe a teacher walking up and down the aisles of a classroom, the suggestion is who's in charge. It's very obvious for anyone who would be watching. They'd know the one walking around is the one in charge. That's the idea. Jesus in charge of his church. There's something about this church that needed to know that. So it's a not-so-subtle reminder to Ephesus that Jesus is in charge. He has his hands on the wheel. The church is his, and he commands it even from heaven. He wants the church in Ephesus to keep that in mind. And as we go deeper into the letter, it becomes clear why. Next, he goes to a commendation of the body. He says, I know your toil. I know your deeds. You persevere in doing the deeds that you're doing. We don't know what these are, but whatever the work was that they were keeping busy in, he says, I know you're doing it. I know you're persevering in it. And then he says, I can also know that you do not tolerate evil men who come calling themselves apostles, but are not. And they would test those men, he says, and they would find them to be false. And so Jesus commends them for their commitment to true authority in the church. And then finally, they persevere and endure for the sake of Christ, he says. They do so without growing weary. So that's a good list of commendations, right? I mean, if if any of us could get Jesus to say those things about us, I think we'd be pretty happy to hear that. And certainly they seem to be a good example. And if we move now from the specific historic to something more general and universal, the application in that case is pretty straightforward, right? Every church should test those who come claiming authority, claiming to know the Bible. If someone comes to you today and says that they are an apostle, what would you do with that? Well, the test in Scripture of whether you were an apostle or not is that you possess supernatural power and you had the authority to write Scripture. And as such, someone who was an apostle was only appointed as such by a personal appearing of Jesus Christ. Every man who was ever called an apostle in the Bible was made so by Jesus personally commissioning them. And that means there was a limited number of such people made. They had specific roles. They were the New Testament prophets. They wrote the Bible for us, the New Testament in the Bible. 
And they proved their power as apostle to anyone who might question whether they truly were or not. They proved it by powers that were unique to apostolic authority. Peter, people being healed when his shadow was cast on them. Paul, being able to be bitten by snakes and not die. Heal people, raise men from the dead who fell out of the window because he was preaching too long, and so on and so on. Right? The point is, that those are not gifts of the body that are generally available. We don't see them commonly in the church. And someone who says they're an apostle and has the business card and the name tag, anyone can call themselves a Girl Scout, but you're not one unless you truly are meeting all the requirements. And similarly, you're not an apostle just because you dream up the title. You are if Jesus appeared to you and personally appointed you as one. And as far as we know, that has not happened since the first century. So apostles existed for a short period of church history for a good reason, to establish the canon of the New Testament and to lead the church before that canon was available to lead them. But once the word of God showed up in its full form, by the way, it's no coincidence that the last living apostle also wrote the last book of the Bible. Once he had completed that work, he was no longer needed either, and apostleship ended. But in the first century, which is when this letter was written, obviously, there were still apostles, and so there were also those walking around claiming to be one. If you remember in the letter Paul wrote to Corinth, the second letter, he chastises them, for the fact that they were questioning his authority as an apostle. If you don't know the letter, it just there's a moment in that letter where he's upset at the church because from a distance, they were believing liars who were telling them that Paul wasn't actually an apostle. And they were claiming to be one instead. And Paul wrote back and he says, I don't know by what power you claim to be an apostle, but I know what power I have, and when I come to you, we'll see you as real power. That's a not-so-subtle threat that if they don't turn out to be a true apostle, he will have the power to put them to death, just like Peter did to Ananias and Sapphira. That's what a real apostle does, not the pretend kind. So that concern in the early church is paramount. If you have people who claim to be an apostle and are not, they're telling you that they can tell you what Scripture says when they don't know it. And that's why God mated that power with the power to do miracles, because he didn't want the early church fooled. So he says to them, I'm glad you're testing these guys, as you should. That's why I gave apostles special power, so that you would have a test to apply, and you could know what the truth was. So every test, every church should be doing that. Now, we shouldn't be worried about apostles today, because such powers are not available in the church. And, and by the way, if somebody says they're an apostle, ask them to do something like raise someone from the dead. I mean, that's no joke. That's the test. That's what this church would have been doing. Show me something that tells me that you are an apostle, because that's why God gave apostles that power. And when they couldn't meet the test, they knew that they were false. So, in the time of the first century, you had people trying to deceive the church. You had churches like Ephesus that were careful and attentive to to teachers. We don't have the same situation, but we got the same requirement. That is, you don't just take your teaching from any Yahoo who says they're going to teach you. You should see something in what they do with the text that demonstrates they know what they're doing. And test them against the scriptures. That's what he commends them for. Notice in verse 6, jumping down there for a second, he also commends them for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now scholars debate a little bit on what this means because it's a bit ambiguous. We know what the word means. A Nicolaitan comes from a Greek word that means victory over the people. Judgment over the people, victory over the people. What it suggests to us is a group of people calling themselves Nicolaitans who were looking for some way to, quote, conquer the congregation. And some believe, and I think this may be accurate, that it gave rise to a heresy of a ruling class versus the regular class, or what we would say today, clergy versus laity. That's the heresy. The idea that there are special people among us 
special holy people among us, special people that we have to work through if we want to get to God. That's heresy. And so in the early church, apparently there was this group that wanted to establish clergy-like positions, much in keeping with what Pharisaic Judaism had done for centuries in Judaism. This idea that there are special people we have to uh, go through. Yes, we have leaders. Let's not say we don't, of course. And you uh, should respect leaders. They have authority for a reason. They should have your support. The Bible says it's not profitable to us to make life hard on our leaders. But they are no better than us in any other sense. They're not specially gifted necessarily. They're just another member of the body doing in their gift what we will do in our gift. Okay? So... He hated those who would propose such separation in the body. And in learning a lesson from that, Jesus notes they have deeds. They have accomplished their deeds consistently. They don't grow weary. All of these are things that if you look at this from a personal perspective and consider how it might apply, we can all sit back and we can all look into this and say, you know, I'd like to get those same compliments. I don't want to be one of those people that's just eager to serve Jesus, jumps in, and then within a short period of time decides, eh, it's not worth the effort anymore, and I fade back again. That that would not be a, a strong testimony. These people had a testimony of persevering, keeping with it, even after years. By the way, the Bible says that endurance is a key ingredient to two things, spiritual maturity and eternal reward. James says in 5.11, we count those blessed who endure. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. I always think that's a great example. You know the story of Job, right? So imagine if Job had not been willing to endure chapters 2 through wherever it was before you, you finally got restored. I can't remember. You see, the point is, if he'd given up halfway, the, the second half of Job doesn't get written. Enduring is how we bring ourselves to where God's trying to bring us, in maturity and blessing. And then Hebrews 10.35 says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. To give up in the call that God has put on your life and serving Him means forfeiting potentially the reward that you were working toward. Don't give up. Run the race to the end. It's just that simple. So, Ephesus is an example to us of discernment against false teaching, unity when it comes to the idea of clergy and laity, and endurance when it comes to serving Christ. But it's not all perfect. Let's flip this coin over because Jesus has critiques here. And in one of the most iconic and perhaps chilling statements that you find in certainly in this book, maybe in the New Testament, Jesus says they left their first love. A statement I think most of us have probably heard somebody say at one point or another. It's such a catching phrase, left your first love. Now clearly, it's easy to define what the first love of the church is. That should not be hard to understand. The first love of the church is Jesus, right? Since what other love would come above Jesus in a believer's heart. Give me another definition of your first love that would exceed Jesus. There's no such thing. As a believer, I'm saying, what can be your first love other than Jesus? It's what brings you to faith in the first place. So we know what the first love is, but that then causes us to wonder, how can that be true for this church? How can a church that persevered in His name and fought for the truth of His Word and was concerned about the unity of the body, how can we say they lost their first love? How can that even happen? Well, the letter gives us a couple of clues for how that happened in this case. And it begins with the description. Remember I said the description in each case is relevant to that particular church. And in this case, he reminded them of who rules his church, right? 
that he ministers to his church by means of angels under his authority and he guards the church as he walks around it and so on. Now, look at what you just discovered in this letter and it's a bit of an odd dichotomy. You have on the one hand a church that's very resistant to false leaders and very resistant to those who want to put a new layer of leadership in the body, a a clergy distinction. They're they're anti-clergy They're anti-false leaders, false apostles. We don't want any leaders that aren't good. (laughs) And at the same time, they don't want Jesus leading them either. Isn't that interesting? He has to remind them, there is somebody in charge. They left their first love in the sense that a teenager turns from obedience to defiance. They move from depending upon and appreciating a parent's care and support to chafing under that parent's authority. They've left their first love in the sense that they've forgotten the early days of that relationship and they've begun to take that relationship for granted. And a second clue to support this conclusion is found in the remedy. Look at the remedy that Jesus wants to give this church in verse 5. He tells them to remember where they have fallen and do the deeds they did at first. Now, To remember where you have fallen, that that means to think about the missteps that have brought you to this bad place and repent of those past mistakes. And the call to repent here would mean specifically, try a different path. Go back to where you got this wrong and start again on a better path. That's what he's saying. And it's especially interesting when you remember what he's just commended them for when he said they have deeds, they were active, they were persevering. But now what you're hearing is the activity wasn't the right activity. It wasn't motivated for love of Christ. In other words, somewhere along the way, what was going on in the church of Ephesus was a community of people who had lost sight of why Christ put his church on the earth in the first place about what church was all about. They left their first love. The church in that case had become about something other than Jesus and the gospel. That's what it has to mean. Because he says they're busy, so it's not about not actively doing things. It's not about laziness. It's not about activity in some general sense. And he says they endured, so they're certainly committed. And it says that they care about the name of Christ. It says they care about Scripture. I mean, these are not apostate Christians. It's why they did the work that matters. It's why they got up and went to church, so to speak. He's talking about one of the greatest threats to the mission of the church. And I'll give it a name. It's self-satisfied Christianity. Self-satisfied Christians. Being self-satisfied means finding satisfaction in the life you have rather than in the life Jesus desires that you would have while carrying the identity of Christian. A self-satisfied Christian is not necessarily someone who doesn't come to church or doesn't get involved in ministry. Remember Ephesus, they were doing lots of deeds. It's not about staying home. It's not about being you know, disconnected from the church. A self-satisfied Christian has forgotten Jesus is in charge both of the church and of your life. So you, you, you know, if you, you'll know you're this person. If you come to church every week, you park in the same parking spot, You sit in the same pew or chair. You say hello to the same people. You shake the same hands every time they do the greeting in the middle of the service. You sing the same songs. You recite the same prayers. You hear the same vague motivational sermon. You forget it just as fast as you heard it every week, just like you did the last week. You give the same amount of money. It's comfortable. It asks nothing of you. And it's under your control. And you've left your first love. 
You have forgotten why you do this thing called church. Churches that leave their first love are churches that start clinics or hospitals or schools. And at the time they may have done that, they did it because they wanted to reach the lost through some other means, perhaps. But in time, it just becomes about healing physical wounds or teaching earthly knowledge, and they forget the mission. This happens in a million different ways. It's always the same root cause. Self-satisfied, leaving your first love, finding something about this world you'd rather control and enjoy, than letting Christ direct your steps. Because on an individual level, it is kind of like the church programs. You know, the church programs forget the gospel, and on an individual level, it's we forget why we're a Christian. You might find Bible classes or small groups that never read the Bible or talk about it. Or men's and women's groups that fill their calendars with potlucks and horseshoes and never talk about Jesus, much less do anything. It's the mission of sharing Jesus with the world that's the reason we get together in the first place, and that's our first love. And anything else you're doing in church either feeds your ability to do that better, or it's probably a waste of time. I mean, there's fellowship that makes you a better evangelist. There's prayer that makes you a better evangelist. I'm not saying that the activity is singular. I'm saying the purpose is singular. Think back, he says to this church, think back where you have fallen. And that would be the command, I think, for all of us if we're in this situation. When did it all just become routine and fellowship and appearances sake? When when did it just become, it's Sunday and got to go to church? If that's where you are, don't come anymore. (laughs) Shake it up. Do something different. Go back to where you started. Figure out what went wrong and go somewhere better. Because you only got so much time and he's coming back. Don't waste any more. And if you're busy, and it's been a long time since Jesus has been controlling your calendar or setting your priorities, or if you work, if you work in church, if you are a minister or you get uh, have a paid position in church, and it's just become about the job and the paycheck, if you walk as a Christian on automatic pilot, Jesus says, as he did to that church, I have that against you. Remember, he runs the church, and since you're a member of the body, he runs your life too. And if you're not following him, if you're not listening to him, he's going to tell you, go back. That's his point here. You know, I will tell you this from experience. If you follow Christ, even half-heartedly, it's like a horizon-to-horizon kind of adventure. From trial to trial, from triumph to triumph. Uh, It's never boring, it's never routine, because he will not let you become self-satisfied, because if you do, you stop growing. So if that's not your experience in Christ, go back. Start where it went bad and try a different path. And he is so serious about this concern that he tells his church, notice verse 5, there will be a penalty if they fail to heed his call to repent. He says, I'm coming to you and I'm going to remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now we know what the stand means, right? It's the symbol of the church itself. And since the church in this case was the city of Ephesus, What his threat essentially means is bringing both the church and the city to an end so that there couldn't be a church there anymore. Back in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, Paul says this. He says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That could be, I think, a mantra for somebody who is struggling with self-satisfaction. Go back to the point where you can say to yourself, I know nothing except Jesus and Him crucified. I don't care about all the other stuff. 
If you can get back to that point, you're probably making progress. And I think it's interesting that the name of this church is Desired or Desirable because that was their chief problem. They lacked a desire for Jesus. Instead, they found desire for other things, it appears. So we should ask the question, what did they do with this? What happened? Did they repent? Well, we can only assume not. Because by the beginning of the second century, this city was in steep decline. For reasons that no one is quite clear on, the harbor just started to silt up. I mean, this is a harbor that had been there for a long, long, long time. But out of nowhere, it started developing silt, washed in by the Mediterranean. And as the silt was deposited into the harbor, it formed land. And so over time, the city that used to be on the water ended up being a long way from the water. To the point where it was no longer a harbor and no longer a port and it lost its main source of income. If you go to Ephesus today and visit the ruins, you're miles from the Mediterranean Sea. It used to be on the water. If God wants to stop your church, (laughs) He can do it. I mean, that's pretty powerful. He'll, He'll change the geography in order to put a church out of business if He needs to, right? He's not kidding. Jesus promised He would bring an end to that lampstand, and He did it. And then he ends with a piece of encouragement. He says, nonetheless, no matter what may happen to the church in any one place, that is, your church might go away, the land may change, whatever, no matter, your personal relationship with Jesus does not change. You notice verse 7, he says, in a call to all believers, those who have ears to hear, that's what he means, to all believers, he says, that the Spirit affirms we will eat of the tree of life. That's another pattern in all these letters. They always end with an encouragement to the believer. No matter how bad that church is, no matter what they do with this call to repent, to the individual believer, there is no condemnation from Christ Jesus. No matter what else may go wrong on earth or in the church, your eternal future in Christ is secure, and in that eternal future you will receive all that you have been promised. And so, in each of the seven letters, he will make some reference to some detail about the eternal realm. Here he does about the the tree of life in paradise. We'll talk about that more in chapter 22. All right, so that's what we've done now with the first letter. Let's just recap as we wind down. We have a letter now that we've looked at from the literal historical perspective. We looked at it from the universal, timeless perspective. That is, we applied it to ourselves. And we've looked at it now from the prophetic perspective. But we still have one question left to answer. That is, how does this church represent the first period of the church age? As I've claimed that it does. Well, first, it's easy to say that this church represents the first age because it's the first letter. So we know where it would start, right? We know that it would start at the outset of the church. When did the church begin? Well, Scripture says that the uh, official start of the church was Pentecost. Why? Well, because the definition of a Christian, according to Paul in Romans chapter 8, is anyone who has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There's a little nugget for you to take back to Sunday school or to your family or somewhere. What is the biblical definition of a Christian? It is the one who has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which comes as a matter of your confession of faith. To be born again by faith in Jesus is to receive the Holy Spirit because it is the Spirit of God who gives you that rebirth. It's all one moment. But what we're saying is this, just because you sit in a church doesn't make you a Christian. No more than sitting in your garage makes you a car Okay? So there are people who think they're Christian because they associate with Christians or because they participate in Christian activities. But they've not believed or received the gospel. They have not been born again by the Spirit of God. And though we can't tell who is who necessarily, God knows. 
And there is a spirit in those who believe, and there is not the spirit of God in those who don't believe. And so the church had a moment in which the spirit of God began to indwell us. That was Pentecost. And that became the moment when a believer was a member of the church. As opposed to, for example, John the Baptist, as just an example, he was a believer, but he died before Pentecost. So he never had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the way you and I do. He was not part of the church. He was just an Old Testament saint, as we might say. Or, I guess, technically kind of a New Testament saint, but not part of the church. The church is those who have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, by definition. That started at Pentecost. So that was the start of the church. This letter, if I'm right, would be telling us about how the early church got started following that moment, giving us an overview. And what do we know about the early church? Well, we know from Acts chapter 2 that the early church was fully aware of their first love and very much attentive to him. You know, you read this in chapter 2, right? About how they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. And they were had a feeling of a sense of awe. And they were selling all their possessions and giving the money to those in need in the church. And you remember this passage I'm describing? You should go back and read chapter 2 of Acts. And look at the harmony. Look at how it says there, by continually in one mind, in the temple, uh, breaking bread from house to house. Just doing things that were filling their day. We're not talking about one Sunday morning here. We're saying this was all they were doing every day for a while. Really engaging with their first love. The reason that was happening in the early church is because there was a sense in the very beginning that Jesus was going to return pretty quickly. And of course, at some point, as time goes on, they began to understand it wasn't going to be quite that fast. And as that realization took hold, things had to change. I mean, the church had to exist in the world. They had to find a balance between looking forward to eternity with Jesus and just making a living today in the world. And their pattern in the earliest days of the church wasn't sustainable in that respect. They were, they were enthusiastic in a way that didn't promote the mission of the church. They were kind of all huddled up in the temple waiting for Jesus. And as they figured out that wasn't the plan, they began to move out. And Jesus encouraged them to move out by persecution in, Jer- in Jerusalem, right? So the whole church had to move out. During the first century, what you see in the nature of the church mirrors what we see in this letter. Generally, the church held to sound teaching. Because you had the apostles themselves alive and teaching and leading the church. And as a result, the church was generally resistant to false doctrine. That's why we have now the New Testament canon preserved for us in the way that we do. Because the apostles in that first century were doing their job and held us together. And it was an impressive time of works. The gospel moved from Jerusalem to every known place in the world. By the time you get to the end of the first century, it's gone to Spain It's set up in Rome and well uh, working there. It's gone as far as we know in that time and earth. And there was a a, a sense of of perseverance against both Jewish persecution and Roman persecution. Uh, The false teachers that tried to infiltrate the church and establish unbiblical leadership were put down. And so all the positive things Jesus says about Ephesus held true in the first century by and large. But as the century progressed, particularly toward the very end of that century, the church began to uh, change in ways that mirror the negative comments of this letter. For example, Jewish Christians had largely died out, and in their place had come Gentile Christians for the most part. And those Gentile Christians brought pagan influences, and uh, they began to enter the church by the thousands. And those Gentile believers were far more willing to mix with the culture than the Jewish predecessors had been because Jews had always been set out from the culture and opposed to the Roman 
pagan way of doing things. But the Gentiles that came in were coming out of that culture. They were perfectly happy to mix. And you see some of that in the letters Paul wrote to Corinth, both the first and the second letter, of the mixing of the two worlds and the problems it was creating. Many of those believers, as a result, ended up self-satisfied, busy building the church, but they did so in the way Romans built Roman society. Uh, They did it for its own sake, just to have a building, just to have a presence in the city. And what did Jesus do to shake up the self-satisfaction of the first century church? Well, in Ephesus, what did he do? He took away their place as a church. Well, as a church, for the whole of the church, what he did was he took away the church's place of privilege and security in the Roman Empire. Where before they could be self-satisfied, eat in the temple on Friday night, go to the church service on Saturday or Sunday, and repeat that every week, and feel like they had found their way to God. Meanwhile, they were doing very little to actually follow Him in the ways that He had expected. Jesus shook them up. And He allowed sustained, widespread persecution to enter into the church at the end of the first century. And in doing so, He purified it. He broke it free of self-satisfaction. Look, if you're just in it for the fun and persecution breaks out, you're done with church. If you're in it because you love Jesus, you stick around. That's why persecution is so helpful to the character of the church. What remained behind was a true committed body that suddenly remembered what it means to be a slave of Jesus and what it means to suffer for Christ. That enters into the second letter. The second letter picks up at that point. And do you know what the word Smyrna, which is the second letter, do you know what the word Smyrna means? Death. Coincidence? Let me show you how this chart works out. So I put it on its side so we can read it better. Ephesus would be the first church if I just... As I just explained it to you, right? And now we have to put dates to it to finish our lesson. I'm going to call it 30 to 100. Now look, there is no science to these dates. It is purely conjecture on my part. That's not the point of this exercise. There's no point in this in trying to nail down a specific date. What's the point? The point is the progression. At some point, the nature of the church had changed from what was true in the very earliest days to something new and different. What was that change? Well, roughly with the last apostle dying, roughly at the end of the first century, persecution breaks out. That's when history records that Domitian, the emperor of Rome, began systematic persecution of the church in the 90s, A.D. 90s. So it corresponds neatly with about 100 A.D. So what we learned is that the early church had this progression from first love to self-satisfaction, and Jesus doesn't condone that. And he shakes the church up and brings it into a period of persecution, which is the the chief nature of the church of Smyrna. And we'll come back to that next week when we go to church number two. Now, I took a long time on the first one tonight because I wanted to show you the pattern. We won't be so slow. Next week we'll do three letters in the course of one night. But that's because we can dive straight in, having seen the pattern, and we can just roll through the pattern looking for what we need to look at. Okay? So that's the age that bridges the church from Christ's first coming to his second coming, beginning with this period called Ephesus. And as we go through this over the next several weeks, we're going to finish out the letters and find out where does that leave us in time today. All right? So I'm going to pray. Those of you who would like to stick around for Q&A, please hold your seats. Anyone who'd like to leave, I just ask that you do it with a little bit of care and quiet for those who want to hang around so we can continue. Father, I pray and thank you and praise you that you have shown us things in the Word that might cause us to think more carefully about our walk with you. For any in this room, Father, who have felt the conviction of the word tonight and recognized the the pattern of self-satisfaction in their own following of you, 
Take their hearts, Father. Mold them with love, care, and kindness as only you can. Show them where they have fallen. Bring them back to that point and give them a new start so that they may please you as you desire in the days that remain. Help us all understand that as we need to, Father. And bring us back here in one more week to study more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.